You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me today for this week's live question and answer YouTube video. What I just simply do is every Thursday afternoon that I'm able to, I come here live on the YouTube channel at 12 noon Pacific time, and people write in questions or comments, and I respond to them the best I can. I certainly don't pretend to have the answer to every question, and uh, if you take all the knowledge about the world, or if you take all the knowledge about the Bible, there's more that I don't know than I do know. But what I do happen to know, or at least think I know, I'm happy to share with you. The way we do it here on Thursday afternoons is I begin with a question of my own choosing. Most of the time, I'm taking a question that's come in by email, or it's been a comment on the YouTube channel, or it's been uh, something that's come in on social media. But this week, I'm doing something just a little bit different. I want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind the last several days, and it has to do with this simple question. Are Christians being treated fairly by politicians? Uh, where I live now in California, there's a lot of discussion about that because many Christians feel that they're not being treated fairly by the government. So let me speak about that. And again, I want to say I live in California and there are many Christians here and around the United States who think that at this point, in the response to the COVID-19 global pandemic, Christians and churches and other houses of worship, for that matter, are being treated unfairly by politicians and public health officials. You see, people notice that many businesses and some gatherings are permitted to open or to operate, some of them with restrictions, some of them without restrictions. Yet, they also see that churches are being surveilled, are being sued, restraining orders are being issued, fines are being levied, threatening letters are sent, violations are being cited, and all of this regarding gatherings for worship. Now, in titling this video, I chose the line, are Christians being treated fairly by politicians? But really, what I'm talking about here is consistency. After all, consistency is an important part of fairness. So are politicians being consistent in their treatment of Christians and churches and other houses of worship? Now, by politicians, I mean governors, mayors, city council members, county supervisors. But, but then I also mean public health officials. So are public health officials and government workers being consistent in their treatment of Christians and churches? Are judges and the legal system being consistent in their treatment of Christians and churches? Is this fair or is it unfair? As I have thought about it, I have come to the conclusion that most politicians and government workers are being 
completely consistent in their treatment of Christians and churches. Now, let me read that again to you, because I want to say it again, just so you understand where I'm coming from. As I've thought about it, I've come to the conclusion that most politicians and government workers are being completely consistent in their treatment of Christians and churches. But it's really important for us to understand and to learn from their consistency. You see, to understand their consistency, you need to understand their principles. Now, you might think their principle is this. The highest priority is public health and slowing or stopping the spread of disease, and we must do everything possible to slow or stop the spread of this dangerous, deadly disease. Now, if that was their operating principle, then I would say that at least here in California, many politicians and public officials are being terribly inconsistent. I would point out that when I go to the big warehouse store or to the home improvement center or to the supermarket, I see people gathering together inside buildings in about the same way they would or could gather together at churches or at houses of worship. I would point out that large public gatherings have been allowed and even endorsed by many of these politicians, public health officials, and government workers. And I would point out that people of faith have gone so far as to have meetings in gambling casinos where they could legally gather instead of their own houses of worship where they could not legally gather. So if the principle is public health and stopping a disease, then these politicians and others are being terribly inconsistent and unfair to religious people, including Christians. But what I recently realized is that our leaders are operating on a different principle. And according to that principle, they are being completely consistent. Here is the actual principle that our leaders operate on. It is how I would express it. Public health and stopping the disease are important, but there are certain things that are more important. I think that's the actual principle that's being acted upon. So they would say it's important to stop the disease, no doubt about it. But it's more important to keep certain stores open. It's important to stop the disease, but it's more important to keep liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries open. It's important to stop the disease, but it's more important to allow certain political protests. It's important to stop the disease, but it's more important to get gambling casinos running again. You see, according to that principle, I think our leaders are being consistent. Here's the problem. Most of our leaders don't think that churches and other houses of worship are important at all. Oh, they may say they think they are important. After all, what politician wants to alienate religious people consciously? But they're actions say otherwise. 
Christians are often judged more on their actions than their words. And I think that's proper. But let me tell you, it's often right to judge politicians and public officials the same way. Judge them not by what they say, but by what they do. And at least in California, and I know it's not only in California, but maybe especially here in this state, at least in California, the way that many politicians, public health officials, government workers and judges, the way they are treating Christians, churches and houses of worship shows that religion, faith, whatever, is in their opinion completely unimportant. In other words, whether churches meet or don't meet really makes no difference for the community in their perspective. For them, churches and houses of worship are just another non-essential operation. Let's pretend there's a social organization in your community. I don't know, a Rotary Club or an Elks Club. And those groups have regular meetings you probably wouldn't think it was a big deal to tell them, hey, for safety's sake, you need to shut down for an extended time. No, it's not because you're especially against the Rotary Club or the Elks Club. You, you don't think about them much at all. It's just that you really don't know all that much about them, but shutting them down for an extended period really can't make that much of a difference to the community. Friends, that's how most public officials see Christianity and churches. It's something like this. <laughs> sure, do whatever you want to do. But what you do isn't really important to our community. It doesn't have any real meaning. That's why it's easy. It's even natural for many of them to do extended shutdowns and to do very little to accommodate churches and houses of worship. <laughs> now, we Christians believe differently. We think that it is vitally important that the people of God gather together in some way. For some, it will be smaller groups. For others, it will be larger groups. Some churches have little problem working with the restrictions the government requires. If that's the case, wonderful. But there's other churches that find it impossible. And they reluctantly defy the restrictions governmental leaders institute. We know that in whatever way that Christians gather, those gatherings are vitally helpful for the spiritual, mental, and even physical well-being of the community. We see that it is no accident that suicide attempts have increased so much in recent months, that so many more people have been depressed, that anxiety cripples so many people, that so many people who have substance abuse problems have relapsed. Christians don't think that Christian meetings are a fix that eliminates all of these problems, but we do believe that when people of faith get together as they should, it really does help a lot. Many of our leaders don't see this at all. To them, people who take religion or faith seriously are strange. Now, this should not surprise us. For many years, our culture, especially our leaders, our elite, if you will, they have become more and more secular, more and more detached from any kind of religious faith or experience. 
They, they don't believe in God in any meaningful, life-impacting way. And they are mystified at the people who do believe in God in a meaningful, life-impacting way. When these leaders or politicians think of essential services, churches are the last thing on their mind. Think about it. When's the last time you saw a real, honest portrayal of a religious person in a major Hollywood movie, video, or television series? Our life of faith is almost completely foreign to most of them. Now, I'm really not talking about this to complain about it. We don't expect the world to love us or to understand us. For the most part, the world did not love or understand Jesus. And as Jesus said, the servant is not greater than the master. That's just the way it is. And we need to be careful about exaggerating things or living with the attitude of perpetual victims. Hey, listen, no matter what our political, cultural, or societal leaders think about us, the people of God are winners in Jesus Christ. You see, I don't think that we as Christians should expect or desire any special favors or status from the government. But we should not be blind to the reality of the situation. Most of our political and cultural leaders have no regard for faith, religion, or people of faith at all. I'm not saying that they're necessarily hostile to or biased against religious people. I'm just saying that for them, it's a foreign world. They have no regard for religion at all. What Christians believe and what they do seem strange and mysterious and honestly, maybe even bizarre to them. Whatever it is that churches and houses of worship do, in their minds, it really doesn't have anything to do with truly helping people or the community. They don't think that churches or houses of worship really do help the community, whatever it is they do but they aren't sources of much good for wherever they are at. So when it is time to elect public officials, take a look at how they regard Christians and other religious people. The way most public officials are acting today, at least in California, they see no real value in churches or houses of worship. Now, Maybe that's an issue that's important to you. Maybe it isn't. But you should be real about it either way. Now, I wonder what it would be like if there was a politician, a government worker, or a judge listening to this. Maybe it's unlikely. But if there was, and they listened to this, and they protested, they said, David, I really do value what churches and houses of worship do. I think that they are an important part of the community. Now, if that's you, that's wonderful. I'm so pleased to hear it. Then my only question is, are you acting in your capacity as a politician, a judge, as a government worker? Are you acting like you value what churches and houses of worship do? It's wonderful if that's the attitude you have in your mind. Maybe it's the opinion you hold. 
but is it demonstrated in what you actually do as a politician, a government worker, a judge? Now, whatever the government or other leaders do, we're going to follow Jesus Christ and be faithful to him. This is our joyful opportunity as Christians, and I hope that you'll stand together with other believers who are just trying to figure out what God wants them to do in this unique season. All right, well, enough with that. Let's go to the live chat, and we'll answer questions along the way. We have a question from Shippa, I believe the name is, and uh, maybe it's Shilpa with an L, and asks, Number one, how to live a disciplined Christian life. And then number two, how did Old Testament saints perceive God the Son or how God the Son was revealed to them? Did the angel of the Lord uh, is used for the God the Son in the Old Testament? Okay, there's two questions there, Shilpa. And let me deal, first of all, with the idea of how to live a disciplined Christian life. Whenever we're talking about discipline, we're talking about habits, habits of life. And there are very practical ways to build strong and good habits. And basically, it just is a principle of what you might call stewardship. Start with something small, be faithful with it, and then build upon it. In other words, make an absolute commitment that you're going to spend five minutes a day in prayer uh, before you go to bed or when you wake up at some time of the day when it can be regular for you and just make a commitment and follow through. Now you might say five minutes. What good is that? What can be accomplished in prayer in five minutes? First of all, let me say a lot can be accomplished in prayer in five minutes, but what you need to see is establishing a small habit, getting that ingrained makes it so much easier to build upon it. So you say, I'm going to read three verses a day uh, through the book of Colossians or through the Psalms or whatever it is. Start small, be faithful to it, and then build upon it. And what we're talking about is the basic Christian disciplines of things like worship, prayer, reading our Bible, thinking deeply, or if you want to use the word meditation upon the scriptures. Fasting is another just spiritual discipline that Christians should practice. So these are things that we just follow the basic principle that God has put into us as human beings. This is how we're wired. Start small, be faithful to it, and then you build upon those habits that you make. Uh, I can't remember what the figure is, but people say it takes 14 days or 21 days or something like that to establish a habit. If you'll do something every day for 14 or 21 or whatever the exact number is, if you'll do it steadily for those days, you will begin to ingrain a habit into your life. And that's what we want to do. We want to build good and godly habits. Secondly, you ask this question, how did the Old Testament saints perceive God the Son or how did God the Son, how is the God the Son revealed to them? Well, the more um, direct understanding of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is really only revealed in the Old Testament, but there's certainly significant evidence that they could understand. They could understand that Yahweh 
which I believe is a way to describe the triune God, Yahweh. God the Father is Yahweh. God the Son is Yahweh. God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. They could understand that Yahweh could appear among humanity, such as in these instances where it says that the Lord visited people or as being the messenger, the angel of the Lord. They could also realize that the Messiah that God had promised, who would be undeniably human, was also at the same time God and called the Son of God. So from these different pieces, they could uh, bring together an elementary understanding of these things, but they were not revealed with greater clarity until the New Testament. What they could understand from the Old Testament is that uh, there is one God, Yahweh, that God reveals himself in different forms, reveals himself as the transcendent God in heaven, reveals himself in some human-like appearance on earth, reveals himself in his Holy Spirit. They could understand that. And they could also understand that the promised Messiah would be divine. These strands could be perceived from the Old Testament. Uh, other than that, it had to be one of those things that was more clearly revealed in the New Testament. So I hope that helps you there, Shilpa. Uh, Luis asks, one question today, can the Holy Spirit leave from a person's life? I encounter a person that says that the Holy Spirit does leave and that you have to fast 40 days to bring it back. Luis, let me say that my first reaction to that idea, and I presume that you're speaking about a believer, that a believer does something to grieve the Holy Spirit, uh, you have to fast 40 days, and then the Holy Spirit comes back. That is a very harmful and legalistic way to think. Now, uh, it is true that the believer can grieve the Holy Spirit. The New Testament tells us, grieve not the Spirit of God. But the New Testament also tells us that if anyone belongs to Christ, they have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's given to us as a down payment. If a person is born again, if they are a believer in Jesus, then they have the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to exclude the idea of continual and future new experiences with the Holy Spirit, if you will, fresh fillings, fresh outpourings, yet everybody who's truly a believer has the Holy Spirit, I believe, as an abiding possession. And the idea that the Holy Spirit could leave a believer and we kind of have to earn his return by 40 days of fasting, that is an unbiblical concept and to me sounds quite legalistic. Fasting is a wonderful part and an important part of the Christian life, but it isn't done to earn things such as earning the return of the Holy Spirit. So I hope that answers your question there, Louise. Thank you for it. Um, Carmel asks, I started going to your commentary before asking a question in your Q&A. Amazing answers can be found there. It might even help you to ask better questions. Well, Carmel, thank you for that. Uh, listen, uh, I don't know how you've run across this video or how you've seen it come up. So you may or may not know that I have a written commentary through the entire Bible. 
every chapter of the Bible, and I'm not going to say I comment on every single verse, but I mean, it's pretty exhaustive. If you were to print it out as a document, it would be more than 11,000 pages throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you have Bible questions and it's not Thursday afternoon at noon, or you don't know if your question is going to answer, go to a passage of scripture where your Bible question may be addressed in my commentary. You can find it at EnduringWord.com. EnduringWord.com. Just like you see on this cup, Enduring Word. Now, I will say as well that my Bible commentary is also available on a wonderful Bible resource site known as the Blue Letter Bible. Uh, this is an outstanding Bible resource site, and you can also access my commentary from there. And just as Carmel said, uh, this may be helpful to many people. So sure, bookmark that commentary, use it, pass on EnduringWord.com to other people. Uh, I'm quite gratified by the fact that there are people who find it helpful and useful in their Christian life. Continuing on, Zach says, Hello, Pastor David. I was wondering what it was like to quote from other commentators in your commentary. Did you have to get permission from them or just acknowledge that the quote was from them? Well, Zach, um, no. To quote small excerpts from other people's works, you don't formally have to get their permission. Now, it's interesting, at least to me, that I say this. If you go to my commentary uh, at EnduringWord.com, at the bottom of every page, there's a copyright statement because my commentary is copyrighted. We've had it officially registered with the federal government, both the English commentary and the Spanish commentary. It is copyrighted. And it says no use beyond personal use without permission. Now, I get many kind emails from people saying, oh, I want to quote you in my sermon. Is that okay? And, and I always have to say, yes, that's absolutely okay. Um, the, the only reason I put that statement in there is because I don't want anybody to sell or make money off of my Bible commentary without my permission. That, that's why I say, well, it's fine for your personal use, but I, I don't want it to be distributed uh, for any kind of money or thing. I give it away. I'm happy for other people to give it away. So that being said, you don't need special permission to quote or cite another author, but author, but integrity tells us that when we use a quote or a dominant thought from another author, that we at least acknowledge that it's their thought or their quote. So it's not a matter of legality. I think it's more a matter of ethics, just that we're being honest about our work. Um, so th that's what I endeavor to do in my work. Thank you for that question there, Zach. Uh, Demai asks, the moment the government allows riots but still insists church closing, that's when I knew something is wrong. Well, Demai, yes, that was, I think, something that exposed a lot of things for people. But what it showed, as I discussed in the opening question, was the highest principle was not public health and stopping the disease. The high, there were higher principles. There were things that were allowed to be exercised because they were considered to be important. The problem is, is that most government officials and most politicians, not all, but most, 
They just don't consider church or houses of worship to be important. That's really where the problem is. Um, going on, Jose says, according to Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, those who practice sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. If a believer never overcomes a practice of sins and dies, will he or she be saved? Your thoughts, please. Jose, that's a very good question. And I have to say that it's a question that can't be answered by merely outward observation. Because we really don't have an outward, absolutely positive way to always tell if a person is born again or not. It is possible for a person who's born again to struggle with sin. I mean, we know this. This is no mystery. To me, if I'm counseling someone in that situation, what I am most concerned about is noting whether or not that person has given up in their struggle against sin. If they have, so to speak, surrendered to it, if they struggle against it and oftentimes find themselves overcome in that sin, but at the same time they hate it and feel guilty about it and wish to overcome it, uh, that's one thing. But if a person's attitude is, yeah, I do this sin. Who cares? Everybody has their own sin. This is mine. I don't care. That may be, I can't say absolutely, but it may be evidence that their heart is not regenerate at all. So these are things that can't be immediately understood just by looking from the outside. We have biblical principles, but sometimes how those principles specifically apply is only fully understood and known by God. So I hope that helps you, but it's a very good question that you ask there, Jose. Going on now to West, who asks the question, hello, Pastor David. Hope you and your family are doing well. We are doing well, West. Thank you for that. Said, wanted to ask, what is living a holy life, what does living a holy life mean without spot, blemish, or wrinkle, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. Well, here you're referring to the passage in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul relates this idea that this is what Jesus is working in the church. Now, another way to describe this process, th this is Ephesians 5, 27, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that is the church, with the washing of water by the word, verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Okay, uh, West, here's the simple idea. That this is God's work in the church, this work of sanctification, and continual cleansing as the church is on earth. That will be ultimately completed and perfected in heaven, in the resurrection. On this side of eternity, nobody's sanctification is perfect, but it's uh, it should be moving in an increasing direction. Listen, friend, if you're still dealing with the same sins in the same way now 
that you were 10 years ago, I think that's a danger signal of your Christian life. I'm not trying to preach some kind of sinless perfection. We are going to deal with sin until the day we die. Then our salvation will be complete and we will be glorified. That's the last aspect of our salvation. We understand justification that's being declared right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. We understand sanctification that's God working in us and through us to, uh, towards Christian growth and holiness. And we understand glorification. That's when it'll all be complete. Until that time, we should be growing in godliness, growing in grace. And if we're still dealing with the same sins in the same measures now as 10 years ago, then again, something's not quite right. And we need to give attention to this in our life. So uh, that kind of perfect sanctification awaits for our glorification, but it should be moving on a trajectory in this life. Hey, older saints are to be better, not bitter. They're to be better. But the mere passage of time does not sanctify a person. We need to continually yield to Jesus Christ and bring those things to him. All right, let me go on to the next question here. Jose uh, asks, hello, David, grace and peace from Mexico. Is there any passage in the Bible that proclaims the whole gospel, praying for you and your family? Well, Jose, I would say the best definition of the gospel that I find is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul declared the content of his gospel. Let me read that to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it just simply begins like this. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's simply it. That's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. Those are the events of the gospel. What they mean and how they apply is explained in the rest of the scriptures. So I can't think of a succinct verse or two that explains the gospel and all its implications. Um, you can go to my YouTube channel and we'll put the link to this video in the show notes. But I believe on our YouTube channel, I have a good message describing what the gospel really is and what it's about. Uh, so we'll put the link to that in the show notes. But instead of looking to one verse, that describes the content, the core of the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. But the meaning of the gospel and the effects of the gospel, that's explained throughout the whole Bible. So I guess that's the best way I would answer your question there, Jose. Luciana writes, Luciana writes, Pastor David, what do you say when someone asks you if you think this time we're living in is the beginning of the birth pains the Bible talks about? Thanks. Well, Luciana, I just say 
that it's good for Christians to believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon. And I think that Jesus has given reasons for every generation to have the expectation that he could or would be returning soon. And as I look around at the world today, I see that the stage is set. I see that the Bible describes a certain world environment, a spiritual environment, a political environment, a cultural environment, a governmental environment, a economic environment, a technological environment. The Bible describes all these different aspects of the world in the very last days. And as I look at that, I say, the stage seems set now more than ever. Now, does that absolutely mean that Jesus Christ is going to return in the next year or five years or 10 years? I don't know. But it just tells me that I need to be ready for his return and that it is a good thing for Christians to live with a proper expectancy of the return of Jesus Christ. So that's simply how I would put it, Luciana. It's a good thing. It's a very purifying thing for Christians to believe that Jesus Christ is returning soon. Okay, um... Luis says, what is a good book that can help me to learn more about how to preach the gospel to unbelievers? Well, look, if you are watching this and have suggestions, I would appreciate it if you would put in suggestions for Luis in the comment section. Um, I have to confess to you, Luis, uh, I don't do a lot. I do some, of course, but I do a, don't do a lot of contemporary reading. So the books that come to my mind are older books, older books uh, that some of them you may know, some of them you may not know. Uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is a wonderful evangelistic book, in my opinion. Um, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. It's an older book, but again, excellent for evangelism. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. That one is a couple decades old now. And it's one, again, a wonderful book. A book by a friend of mine named Gail Irwin titled The Jesus Style. I actually think that that's a wonderful book to give to unbelievers. So Again, I'm not doing a lot of contemporary reading. Uh, Most of the books I read are from older authors, not all, but mostly. So I'm going to give you books that are older. Maybe some of our viewers can give those suggestions to you in the comments. So let me move on to the next question from uh, Darren comments and says, a servant is not greater than his master. Amen. We earnestly believe that. And that's one of the reasons why we... uh, aren't shocked when there is disregard or disrespect of believers in churches by the secular world. We just come to expect it. Um, Donald says, believers go straight to heaven when they die. So do unbelievers go straight to hell when they die? What is the second death? Okay, uh, Donald, I would explain it this way. And again, You can go through some of the teaching on my YouTube channel, especially some of the latter teachings in a series I did called God's Plan of the Ages. You can find a video where I deal with this in much greater depth. But I would say, yes, that's correct. Believers go directly to heaven. As Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
Paul said that it would be advantageous for him to be with the Lord, not that he was in some kind of suspended animation or soul sleep. But I, I would say that the best indication I would say, and, and again, I want to acknowledge, we wish the scriptures gave us more understanding about this. It gives us some understanding, but we wish it was more. Simply to say this, that we can surmise that when unbelievers die, they go to a place of torment called Hades, and there they await the final judgment, sometimes known as the great white throne judgment. And then after that, all the guilty will be consigned to the lake of fire. That's the order of judgment for those who reject Jesus Christ and don't have any don't want to have anything to do with the salvation that Jesus offers. So that's simply how I would explain it there, uh, Donald. Uh, the second death would be that that final condemnation that comes to people from their rejection of Jesus Christ. Um, West asked the question, and I can deal with this briefly. He says, what is sin other than just missing the mark? Well, West, I just want you to recognize that the Bible uses many different words to describe sin. Iniquity, transgression, um, I don't know, uh, reviling, uh, evil deeds. I, I mean, I could go on, evil works. The Bible uses many different words to describe sin or rebellion against God because uh, our sin is a many-faceted thing. There are many different angles, if you will, about sin, how we sin, how we practice sin. And so uh, there's no one word that can define uh, our sin. The Bible uses many different words. So th there's no one explanation of what sin is. It's actually explained by a broad vocabulary of words in the Old and the New Testament. Uh, Sono asks this question. Hey, Pastor David, can you please explain what it means that the Spirit groans things that can't be uttered in Romans 8? I've heard some folks say that this is a reference to tongues. God bless you, brother. Well, Sono, the reference you're making in Romans 8, where it talks about the Spirit being able to uh, intercede on our behalf with groanings that cannot be uttered. Uh, let me see if I can find that verse quickly here. Um, it simply says, uh, let me look it up here. Eagerly awaiting the redemption. I'm looking for the verse here. Uh, for we know, well, that's the groaning of creation. Okay, verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Um, so no, my reaction to that is I don't think that that's speaking of the gift of tongues. I suppose at a distance, it could refer to the gift of tongues, but that's not really the fundamental sense behind it. The fundamental sense is groanings that cannot even be uttered. And whatever you want to say about the exercise of the gift of tongues, it's something that can be uttered. It's God's way of expressing this idea that when there are things that are so 
deep within us that we can't even find any words to express. Even then, the Holy Spirit hears us. So I, I wouldn't um, rule out the gift of tongues in this, but it doesn't really seem to be the focus of it at all. Um, that's simply how I would explain it. Things that cannot be uttered. Let me continue on. Um, Tyler asks, who are the sons of God and Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4? Well, Tyler, um, you're asking a question that is actually quite controversial, and there are Christians who have widely different opinions on it. Uh, I'll give you my opinion. Uh, I believe that the best explanation, now let me preface it by saying this, I believe that every possible explanation of the sons of God and the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, Every explanation of that has some difficulty attached to it. Uh, I, I believe what I believe, not because it has zero difficulties, but because I think the difficulties it has are to be preferred to the difficulties of the other positions. And here's the position I hold. That the sons of God were some expression of the demonic either demonic beings or a unique form of demonic, ex, uh, um, demonic possession, uh, a, a unique expression of demonic possession. But they were some manifestation of the demonic, that the daughters of men were human beings, and that there was something unnatural about the offspring between this some manifestation of the demonic and the human. Now, again, uh, this is a opinion of the text that is mocked by many people. They think it sounds like some weird science fiction thing. And I agree, it does sound a bit strange. But I think all in all, that is, in fact, the best explanation of the evidence. When you take what it says about it in the book of Genesis, and what it says about it in the book of Jude as well. So uh, I, I think that that is the best explanation. Uh, continuing on, Jane says, uh, Hi, Pastor David. Do you ever travel to other churches in the U.S.? I'm in Dallas, Texas, and would love to hear and see you in person. Well, Jane, I'm definitely traveling less these days. Uh, I've had a fairly extensive travel schedule in the past, but it's less. Uh, but all I can say is um, people can submit some kind of request. There's actually on EnduringWord.com, if you go under, under the About menu, there is a uh, speaker request form, and you can fill that out or have whatever church fill it out. And I'll just simply pray about it and see how it fits into my schedule. So I I'm certainly open to the idea but I just try to listen to the Lord and be careful about what I accept or what I don't accept. But thank you for asking, Jane. I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, Kevin, you're very welcome. Scott says uh, he appreciates the lessons on Ecclesiastes. We'll praise the Lord for that. Um, Aaron says, Rose's Books of Bible Charts, Volume 2, Volume 3 has 24 ways to explain the gospel. Hey, that's great. I have found uh, some real usefulness in some of those uh, Bible charts that Rose Publishing puts out. 
I'll just answer a few more questions here. We're coming to an end. It says, who wrote Hebrews? Just kidding. <laughs> what are the various views on the Hebrews warning passages? And were they believers that were in danger of falling away or not? Um, I will kind of cut to the chase with this question and just say that that's certainly how it appears in the text. I know there are people who are saying, well, it's not speaking to believers. It's speaking to unbelievers that just happen to be among Christians. But there's no specific notation of that. I mean, theoretically, that could be true. But what it does is it gives purpose, it gives rise to a proper self-examination for every believer. When we read these warning passages, we should take them seriously. What we shouldn't say is, well, I'm born again. I don't have to worry about that. No, we should take them seriously and say, what does this speak to me about my Christian life and how I need to be continually faithful to God? Now, I believe that if you're truly born again, you will persist in your Christian life. You will persevere if you want to use that terminology. I don't have a problem with saying that. But part of the way that God builds perseverance in his saints is through such warning passages. And there's a danger for Christians to be so focused on the theoretically, saying, well, theoretically, someone who's really a believer can never fall away, that they miss what's right in front of their face. Here's a warning to you, dear believer, take it seriously. So I guess that expresses my heart, my interest in this. I don't want to blunt the impact of those warnings. They're just saying, ah, if you're born again, doesn't apply to you. No, this is something for every believer and people who just are church attenders, but not believers, not actual believers. It's something for them to give attention to as well. So I hope that helps clarify that there. Uh, Godfrey says, great topic, Pastor David. Well, thank you for your words there, Godfrey. I believe I, uh, I appreciate that. What is your opinion? Ed asks this question. What is your opinion of the older book, Calvary Road by Roe Hessian, and using it as a primary study series for a men's group? Um, Ed, I have read that book, Calvary Road. Uh, I think it's a good book. Is there possibly something in it that I could find to disagree with? I'm sure there is. But no, that's a good, solid book. I would recommend that as something wonderful for your group to go through. And again, I have an affinity for older books, even if they're you know not terribly old. Uh, that's within the last 50 or 60 years, I suppose, Calvary Road. But that's a good book. I, I would recommend that for your men's group. And just a few more questions here. Uh, Pastor David, do you believe in pre, mid, or post-tribulation rapture? Adendende, uh, I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. You can find videos on my YouTube channel. I think there might be even one why I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture that explains why it is I believe it. And I'll just give you this very short answer. Just as I said with the previous question regarding the... Um, the previous question regarding the sons of God and the Nephilim in Genesis chapter six, just as I said with that question, my position is not held because I don't think that there's uh, 
zero problems with the pre-tribulation rapture framework. I understand there's some problems with it. But as I have carefully researched the alternative suggestions, I think that there's more problems, greater problems with the other frameworks than there are with the pre-tribulation rapture framework. So again, I, I just think we have to be very real about this and realize that they um, there are weaknesses to every position. You just have to carefully weigh out and decide what weaknesses you think are preferred. Um, how to stick to a consistent spiritual life without backsliding, a question from C. Uh, we'll end with this question. Um, again, I, I mentioned this in an answer to a question in the very beginning of the video where we simply talked about build spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, thinking deeply upon the scriptures or meditating on the scriptures, prayer, uh, worship, fasting, um, evangelism, getting together with God's people. These are spiritual disciplines. And we build habits by starting small, being consistent, and letting the habits build. That's a very simple and straightforward answer to that. And finally, Susan, thank you for your kind words on my commentary there on Psalm 119. There was something for me very special about studying through and preparing the commentary through Psalm 119. So um, that's going to be it for today, Ruth. It is wonderful to see your comment again. God bless you. Thank you, Ruth, for all the help you've been giving lately. It's wonderful to work through those things that we're working together on. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who tune in. Of course, as everybody says, subscribe, hit the like button, all the notifications, all the rest, whatever. We're grateful for what God is doing in and through this YouTube channel. I'm very grateful that you could join me today. And God willing, and if we live, I'll be back with you next Thursday to speak more about Bible questions. God bless you, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful day in Jesus Christ. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.